Welcome to Distressed Situations, a Reed Smith podcast. On this podcast, we cover current issues in financial restructuring over a wide variety of industries. I'm Keith Arzeda, a partner in Reed Smith's Global Restructuring and Insolvency Group, and I'm one of the hosts of this podcast. Whether your company is a financial institution or in industry, we hope our commentary will be useful in managing the risks associated with distress. If you have any questions about our topics, feel free to contact our speakers. Welcome to our latest episode of Distressed Situations, a Reed Smith podcast. I'm Keith Arzeda, a partner with the firm. And I have to tell you, I'm very happy today to be meeting with two excellent restructuring professionals. I'm going to give them a brief introduction. and I'm going to let them introduce themselves following that. First is Mark Shapiro, Senior Managing Director of B. Riley Advisory Services. Mark has acted as a Chief Restructuring Officer and a Financial Advisor to a number of different companies in different industries. We're going to hear from him today about his experience with Gold's Gym. In addition, he's joined by a member of his firm by the name of Frank Cottrell. He's a director. He served as financial advisor and interim CFO of various organizations, and we're lucky to have them both. How are you guys today? Good, Keith. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm really happy to have you on the show today. Frank, how are you? Doing good. Thanks for having us, Keith. You bet. So as I alluded in the intro, we're going to focus on two things during today's episode. And really, I think you are both in a unique position to give some insight on two topics that are current and relevant. The two topics are consumer-facing businesses like restaurants, retail shops, and fitness centers, and the current challenges that they're experiencing in today's marketplace. After we talk about that, we're going to talk about a second topic, which is receiverships generally as a remedy for lenders in general and in the current environment. In that regard, I'm going to give a few thoughts from the legal perspective and let you guys chime in on the business side. But first, I want to hear what you guys do in your actual lives and what you do for fun. So I'm going to start with Mark. Mark, tell us something that you do for fun. So especially in the pandemic, to get outside, I'd, I'd say I'm a, I'm a biker. I haven't done a, recent, a, a long trek recently, but a few years ago, I did the 100-mile up at Lake Tahoe, up at Lake Tahoe, which was a lot of fun. So, try and get out of, on my bike as, as often as I can. How about you, Frank? So, I have a two-year-old; he'll be two this month, and I have nieces down the street who are both five. So, my off time involves playing with them and doing barbecues and climbing play structures and, and dance parties. That sounds good. One of these days, I'll have to see you at one of those dance parties. I'd like to see that. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> so let's start with our first topic. Let's talk about consumer-facing businesses. Uh, one thing that Mark did not share with the world for purposes of this podcast, and I'm going to share it right now, and that's the fact that he's a magician. Mark, tell us about your experience with Gold's Gym, the result, what you did. Give us a flavor for how that turned out. <laughs> wouldn't call myself a magician, Keith, but thank you. So we were financial advisor in the GGI Holdings bankruptcy in the Northern District of Texas, which is the Gold's Gym bankruptcy. So a few stats. Gold's Gym had approximately seven locations in 28 countries. At the start of the case, there were 95 owned, approximately 600 franchise. And fairly early in the case, we closed about a third of the owned gyms. Pre-filing 2019 gap revenue was about $280 million. 
system-wide revenue was much higher, obviously, because they're only recording the revenue from the company-owned gyms and just the franchise fees from the uh, from the network. Employee count pre-filing was about 4,600. However, and this goes into the, uh, the troubled aspect of it, only 111 were active. So when we were engaged, there was, it's right in the middle of the beginning of COVID, there was zero revenue, no cash receipts, all the clubs were closed. So from a balance sheet perspective, there was some senior secured debt with JP Morgan Chase was about 52 million. We secured a $20 million dip facility. Ultimately, we sold it for $100 million. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about the results. We're still targeting a 100 cent case. We got a lot of publicity for it being a 100 cent case. And to do that, the unsecured and the admin claims will have to be somewhere around in the $30 million range. Still have a lot of work to do to get those claims reconciled, but uh, we, we still feel pretty good about that. So the timeline of that, we were retained towards the end of the month in March 2020, which was barely two weeks after the world changed. We just we just went through the first anniversary of March 11th. That was that Wednesday night when uh, the president closed the border. The NBA season was canceled and Tom Hanks and his wife were stuck in Australia. So we were retained maybe two weeks after that. We had one large advantage in this case in that we had an equity holder that was supportive who wanted to own the company on the other side, and they provide the dip financing. So when you look into some of the other fitness cases, they don't have that luxury. Now, that was an advantage, but it was also a disadvantage. The fact that the, um, the equity holder wanted to own on the other side isn't necessarily always the best thing for maximizing value. And ultimately, one of the issues that we had was being able to pivot over to a sale process. Originally, when we were first retained, there wasn't going to be a sale. It was strictly going to be a restructuring. We were going to close a bunch of clubs. And TRT, who was the equity owner, was going to own it on the other side. We were retained late March, early May. We filed and mid-May after the committee was, was formed, it pivoted to a sale. We didn't have a lot of time to sell the companies because the August 1 confirmation date was set by agreement with the committee and the debtors. If we wanted to work for, forward to an August 1 confirmation date working backwards, we had to sell the company and have an auction sometime in mid-July. So the challenges that we had were essentially starting a sale process late May and trying to sell the chain of fitness clubs in the middle of a pandemic in 45 days, which is not necessarily the easiest thing to do. We originally also were not hired to be the investment banker. So midway through the case, we had to pivot from being a financial advisor to an investment banker. One other advantage that we had when you're comparing it to the other, the other brands in the space is in Gold's Gym had a brand. Now, in the States, it was may have been a little tainted and may have been tarnished. But overseas, they still remember Gold's Gym and Venice Beach and, and Pumping Iron and Arnold Schwarzenegger. That, that, that still resonates on the international scale. And a lot of the interest that we had was from overseas. The other good thing that we had going for us was if you look at, and this kind of touches on the problems that other retailers are having, you have to stand for something. So in the fitness space, the ones who are doing well are the very high end, which is Equinox and Lifetime, or the very low end, Nietzsche type plays similar to uh, Planet Fitness. But the ones in the middle, the 24-hour fitness, the LA Fitness, the Gold's Gym, the Town Sports, which is New York City Athletic Clubs, all were right smack in the middle. It was a classic retail squeeze. You had big boxes. You ha- they didn't really stand for anything. What they did have was a brand, but it's what differentiated 
golds from the troubles that the other, I'll call it the middle market, big box gyms have, the 24-hour fitness, town sports, and LA fitness. But we had that going for us, and we were able to market that overseas. The other thing that we had to do, which was very difficult, is uh, when I mentioned before that the owners wanted to own it on the other side, we all know in the bankruptcy world that there's some issues with credibility and trying to convince investors that it's a fair process, that it's not stacked in in, in favor of, of one party being the equity investor. So we had to communicate that story that it was a fair, open process and there was going to be transparency. We had to feed them the data and we had to to work with them as much as we can. The story that we pitched to them was essentially own the past. Essentially, Golds was having issues even before COVID, which is, again, a lot of the issues that other retailers are having. Most of the filings that occurred towards the beginning of 2020 and in late 2019 were, were retailers that were having problems beforehand. And COVID just exacerbated those that situations. So we had some issues with credibility. We had to own the story. We had to sell the future. And we had to make sure that we had transparency at the auction. So you had to own the story, sell the future all at the time while you were in the middle of a global pandemic. Correct. And it, because everybody had their own view of what normalcy was going to be and what was going to happen. Because at the time, you're talking April, May 2020, clubs were still closed. States were still shut down. And everybody had a view of how long the cat. We were burning cash. We were burning a million dollars. For a mid-market company, we were building, burning over a million a month. And everybody had their view. It's also why I ultimately believe that in the end, the ultimate buyer of Gold Gym was going to be somebody who was already in the business because they they had their own view of the world. They had their own view of what fitness was going to look like in 21 and 22. But it was going to be very, very difficult to bring anybody to the table who didn't already understand it. So we had TRT, we had the German company, RSG, who was the ultimate bidder that showed up. And, and then ultimately, the most important thing we did is we got a third bidder to the table because we never quite knew where TRT stood. We didn't know where they put value on because if it was only TRT and RSG at the auction, this thing doesn't sell for $100 million. So ultimately, we brought a, a joint venture to the table, which was led by Dallas Capital. Bringing them to the table, having the auction and having a robust process, I think, was the key in, in selling that business for the proceeds that we got. So let's let's put a couple of data points in, and then I have the most important question to ask here in a second. What was the opening bid? Opening bid was about $70 million. The stocking horse was 68, including the overbid. It was about $70 million. And what was the final? $100 million. Sold for $100 million. So you delivered $30 million of additional value over the stocking horse bid. Correct. Uh, the original plan that was proposed was contributing $225,000 to a creditor trust. Ultimately, we delivered over $32 million. Great result, Mark. Thank you. Now, the question that really is on everybody's mind is please explain the hot tub. <laughs> you heard about the hot tub. So I got a call from our RSG was, was the overseas German company that showed an interest very, very, very early on in the process. And I got a call from their attorney the night before, Mark, don't worry what you see because we were doing a virtual auction. This is the first virtual auction we were doing. This is, I'd never done anything like that before. So we had a big screen with a lot of people. 
probably 35 parties on there and we open up the, the, the screen and there's five beefy dudes sitting in a hot tub in Berlin and they took the entire auction bidding $10 million increments from a hot tub in Berlin. It was, it was, it was, it was pretty wild. Now the celebration when they jumped out was not very good, but it, it was, it was quite the experience. <laughs> And for anybody listening that wants to see that picture, you can probably just do a quick Google search and it'll come up. And if not, I'm sure Mark will send you a copy. <laughs> I want to direct my next question to Frank. Frank, what do you think happens in the latter half of 2021 and into 2022 with retail and consumer facing businesses like, like GGI, like JCPenney's, like Chuck E. Cheese, like Neiman Marcus? What, what do you see happening next? Thanks, Keith. So although the pandemic threw everything into disarray, it's important to remember, particularly with retail, that prior to the pandemic, we already had the retail apocalypse in full force. And the notable trends there being, one, the consumer preference shifts, two, the continuing e-commerce growth, and, and three, dealing with overbuilt stores and excess real estate inventory. So all these trends are still relevant, particularly the e-commerce. And in addition, you're, you're layering on the, the pandemic challenges and the, the biggest current challenge being supply chain, including ships getting stuck in the Suez Canal. One of the interesting things to, to do at the end of the year is, is review the filing activity and, and see how that matches with what kind of your, your thoughts of, for the year. So 2020 was certainly notable, not only for the number of retail bankruptcies filed the most since 2009, but also the magnitude of retail bankruptcies relative to prior years. So when we look at retailers with assets of 100 million or more, they comprise 60% of filings in 2020 compared to 50% in 2019 and 36% in 2018. So substantial shifts here in 2020. However, the, the pace of filings curbed off at the end of 2020, making numbers less bleak than originally anticipated. So this underscores the efficacy of, of retailers' resilience to the pandemic. You saw them making faster decisions regarding the right-sizing of the assets, then responding to the unforeseen demand shifts, and then adjusting the supply chain for stronger omnichannel execution. I should note that this included extraordinary efforts by the retailers to preserve cash, including skipping rent payments. So it can be said that a lot of the resilience was generated on the backs of landlords. So that's a nice segue for the real estate. So on the real estate front, heading into 2021, rent was at a historic low and uh, there's vacant space is abundant. So this year we'll see more stores opened than closed, which hasn't happened in real estate in years. Uh, we'll see brands and concepts that were able to weather the storm, take advantage of shorter leases to experiment with different formats. And there'll be a shift away from building the for peak demand. You know, think about kind of a Walmart, you know, ready to to fulfill all the demand necessary during peak times and massive footprints, which is some of the issues that, that we've, we've seen to kind of more direct, niche, very specialized formats. That being said, 
These opportunities will likely benefit large national brands with the ability to take advantage of the favorable credit markets and access to capital. So we see the narrative quite differently for the middle market space. Uh, there's obvious unaddressed issues when you consider the composition of the filings in 2020 were weighted toward the larger chains. And then potential slowdown in stimulus programs could lead to cooling off of the consumer, the consumer which we've seen have an unprecedented run, especially in the savings. So we also think that you know, landlords will exercise their rights more aggressively this year. And then there'll be, of course, continuing supply chain disruptions. And all these will combine to, to really force a lot of the middle market uh, into, into filing. So I'd, I'd say just to summarize that, I would say we, we're back on the trail, but definitely not out of the woods with definitively more headwinds to come. And the jury's still out on things like the restaurants. We have a few cases going. We've seen uh, revenue drop off from 50 to 75%. Uh, we've seen some of the, even the takeout, not adding a whole lot of back of revenue. So it helps, but definitely not a, not a fix. When we think about lodging and, and travel, especially cruises, and like Mark touched on fitness, and as we all know, sports and entertainment are another uh, customer-facing segment that has yet, yet to return in full force. I can add on to that a bit, Frank. Our firm has seen the active constituents in these retail cases to really be boiled down to three lenders landlords and franchisors. I think we're going to continue to see activity around leasing, trying to, like you said, open up more stores this year than closed just due to the availability of retail space. I think much of this is going to be driven by people's comfort level to rejoin the world, so to speak, and, and come out, eat in restaurants, shop in person, rely less on online retail. Thank you for that, guys. I want to switch now, talk a little bit about receiverships. I want to start by just describing receivership for people who are listening that may not be familiar with the topic. In the eyes of the law, receivership is really the appointment of a third party to take possession of an asset and to administer that asset. And the, the legal term is in custodia legis, which means in custody of the court. What can be put into the custody of the court varies, and it depends on the on the statute that's being applied. It can be an asset, uh, like a tangible hard asset, like a piece of property, a real property, an MRI machine, a bulldozer, those sorts of things. It can also be an entire company for various reasons. The statutes that allow for the appointment of receiverships are really broad. They span from collection of judgments aid and foreclosure, general equity receiverships, insurance receiverships, family law receiverships. Anytime that property needs to be taken into possession of the court, administered, preserved, liquidated. And so I know that you both, Mark and Frank, have experience in receiverships. And I think it would be really instructive to our listeners if we could hear you talk a little bit about your experience with receiverships and in particular, have you acted as receivership as a receiver? And Mark, I'm going to start that question directing that to you. Talk about your experience in receivership. And, and if you have an interesting anecdote to share, that would be great. No hot tub stories for receiverships, but uh, we'll find one. 
So I agree with you. Um, we have, first of all, we've seen an increase in the demand for receiverships. I think everyone is looking for a cheaper alternative to bankruptcy. And specifically when you have either a two-party dispute or an asset-heavy entity that you need to take control over, those seem to be the areas that, that we're seeing. So, for instance, where I've been a receiver recently, I was a receiver and still am a receiver for a network of auto dealerships across multiple states, the assets there being the vehicles and also real estate. I've been the receiver over retail properties with own real estate. We've been receiver of senior care facilities and hospitals. And actually, the legacy of Glass Ratner now B. Riley Advisory Services was back in the heyday of the real estate downturn in 2008-9-10. Glass Ratner was operating probably more than 100 commercial receiverships to wind down commercial portfolios for various rates all across the country. So the, the, the legacy of Glass Ratner in there in the distressed world, actually, a lot of it is ties to receiverships in the real estate world. Most of mine lately have been state receiverships, but when you cross over state lines, um, you know, they turn into federal, uh, different quality of judges, I think, in the federal receiverships and state, but, but ultimately very similar process. I think the most interesting one I had, and, and receiverships have been difficult, and, and maybe we, even with you, Keith, if you can compare and contrast to bankruptcy, I find sometimes it moves slower. So, for instance, if you're filing a bankruptcy, you can file in a day and have first days in two days. However, with a receivership, you're following filing a TRO and a notice of receiverships, and it can take three or four weeks. And Sometimes if it's contentious, they're emptying the coffers before you even get the chance to be a receiver. So there's a little bit of a different dynamic there that makes receiverships, while it is more cost effective, it is tougher to operate in them. And and some of the anecdotes I have are just how difficult it is. We were appointed receiver over a, a hospital. The owners were overseas in the Middle East. The sons were running it. One was an attorney. The other one had no idea of how to operate things, but they put him in charge. It was very contentious. It took probably three or four weeks to get appointed as a receiver. And most of the records and the hospital equipment were gone in, you know, uh, if you're looking at me, I'm putting up quote unquote related party, re- related companies who actually owned it. It made it extremely difficult. Ultimately, there were two companies. I was appointed receiver over the operating company, and they filed a bankruptcy in the real estate company. So we had to fight through that to get at the collateral. Um, ultimately, it became a two-party dispute, and we had it we had it thrown out of bankruptcy court. But it just made it extremely difficult, and a lot of the issues had to do with it was extremely contentious. We didn't have an agreed upon path, and it took way too long to get the receivership appointed. So that's my my interesting tidbit of the day. Well, I can tell you, I've I've acted as receiver at least a dozen times, and the one common fact pattern that has happened for all of my operating receiverships is that payroll is due the day after I'm appointed, and there's no money to pay it. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so I want to direct the last question of the podcast to Frank. Frank, in your experience, this is maybe the the most important question of the whole podcast and your experience, do creditors do better in receivership or bankruptcy? Well, so in regard to what cases 
or, or better suited, I, I think about two different things. One, the first thing is is getting on on first regarding the getting the receiver appointed. So we we think that consent you know consensual is better than non-consensual, obviously. And of course, not having necessarily unanimity, but consensus about a path forward is also helpful. And if you have overhang litigation, that can be problematic because as we all know, you don't have quite the stick that you have in bankruptcy court that you, you would in, in the state court. So it's very difficult to deal with litigation. The second thing I think about in receivership is, is running the process to administer the assets, whether operating or transitioning those to, to a new owner or, or selling them. And some of the things I think about with that are, are trying to have access to information and cooperation from the operator. And also, of course, optionality, the existence of valuable assets that are marketable, make it easy in case something goes wrong with, with the operating and, and gives you a, kind of a side exit out if you need to, as far as increasing and maximizing value for the parties. So I think it really depends depends on what the, what the situation is, and you know the more complex, obviously, the bankruptcy is definitely the the way to go. As as Mark had mentioned, receiverships are generally a two party dispute type of uh, situation. First, let me say thank you, Mark. Thank you, Frank. We are grateful for you joining us, and to those listening, we're grateful for you as well. This has been a Reed Smith podcast production, Distressed Situations. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Keith. Distressed Situations is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's restructuring and insolvency practice, please email distressedsituations at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and on our social media accounts at Reed Smith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved.